everyone and welcome to another Scots Way podcast and today we are joined by Peter Ross, freelance journalist, um, who has a book out called Don the Lust, which is a collection of articles you did, they're all from Scotland and Sunday? Is that yeah, right? yeah, all, all, all but one really, there, there's kind of 42 of them and they're all kind of articles that I wrote for Scotland and Sunday over a kind of five year period, uh, 2008 to 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, um, well, before we get into the book, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, how you've got to this stage in your career, because I think journalism is one of these careers that people, um, you know, say, that's what I'd like to do, but actually it's a really hard thing to have done for the length of time that you have done, I think. Yeah, I, I think, um, I'm trying to think when I started now, I think it was, um, I've been writing professionally since, I think, um, 1997, mm-hmm. uh, but I started really doing stuff for, you know, fanzines and uh, for kind of uh, student newspapers, writing about music. You know, I think okay. a lot of people sort of go into journalism, start out writing about the things that they themselves enjoy. Sure. But then you, you very quickly find out the musicians are rubbish to talk to. You know? <laughs> great, great to listen I'm to. I'm saying nothing. Great to listen to, but, you know, but if you're trying to interview them, it's very difficult to kind of get uh, compelling material, mm-hmm. you know, because they are articulate, you know, while playing the guitar or, or, or piano or whatever it is, yeah. not necessarily about their, their work and it's the same with same with visual artists I suppose that sort of thing so um, so yeah so I, I sort of started out doing that and then and then I began to work for The List mm-hmm. magazine in 97 for a couple of years I was kind of hired then because I kind of knew one or two things about the internet right uh, and it was, it was still in the sort of early days of dial-up and that sort of thing so I was recruited to try to to sort of um, put together some kind of website packages at that time. Okay. Um, but uh, the list is an organisation where you kind of just start. If you, you know, if you're if you're interested in writing, there was an opportunity to do that. Thinking so, of who wants to do this. Yeah. So I started writing for them, and then went to uh, the Sunday Herald just after its launch in 1999. Mhm. So with them for eight years, mainly doing kind of celebrity interviews. Yeah. That's what I was doing then. Um, I got really sickened of that, you know, sickened <laughs> myself in celebrity interviews, yeah. Why was that? Well, because it's just, you know, there's very few people that you meet that are really, really, um, in the celebrity world that are really kind of got compelling personal stories, you right. know. And, and often you're, you're, you're kind of going down on a sort of treadmill where you would go down to the Dorchester in London for an hour if you're lucky and mm-hmm. uh, interview actor X or whatever, you know, uh, and it's just very difficult in those situations. I don't think it serves the actor or the journalist or the readers particularly well, that kind of very industrialised junket journalism. Yeah. I like this stuff. I mean, I'm a, I'm a great lover of celebrity profiles if they're done right, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the work of, uh, you know, the American writer Gay Talese. Uh, right, for ex- I don't know. Oh, he's not, tremendous. He wrote for Esquire in the 1960s. Okay. His sort of most famous piece is called Frank Sinatra Has a Cold. This kind of 20,000 word profile of Sinatra for which he did like 200 interviews. It's incredible. Um, but you just, it's very hard to get that kind of freedom. And, and so you end up on the treadmill a little bit. I mean, there's one, one or two exceptions, you know, people that are interested in the process, like Tilda Swinton, I spent a bit of time with her, or Robbie Coltrane, and these people are willing to engage and then you can actually come up with a piece of work that's worth writing. Right. But mainly it was just something that I just got fed up with. So when I went to Scotland on Sunday, mm-hmm. I wanted to do uh, a completely different kind of journalism. And they asked me, did I want... Because they already had a celebrity interviewer, Catherine Deveni. Mm-hmm. Um, and they asked me, do, do you want to write a column? I really didn't, because I didn't want to have to cannibalise my life, which isn't really that interesting <laughs> yeah. for, for cannibalising. Um, 
so I said, well, I'll write a column if it can be about other people, basically. So that's where the idea of doing pieces mm-hmm. that were a sort of hybrid of my thoughts and reportage came from. So how, what were your influences in, in the style, uh, uh, particularly in terms of these articles? You know, what, what influenced you? Who influenced mm-hmm. Well, I think the main one would be um, a, a, an American writer, again, called Joseph Mitchell. Right. He was a, a journalist uh, in New York. He's from, I think he's from one of the Carolinas. Right. He moved to New York just at the end of the 1920s and started doing kind of crime reporting and stuff like that uh, for the New York papers and gradually moved on to um, sort of feature writing. And then, so he, and, then, and then he eventually went to work for New Yorker, which was his home for, I think, you know, 25, 30 years. He's a good friend of A.G. Liebling. Right. But, but Mitchell was very interested in writing about very street-level stuff, so he would, you know, you would get... You know, ten thousand word pieces about bearded ladies, or mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, Bowery bums, and yeah. uh, you know, o- oyster fishermen actually yeah. in the in, in the Hudson, and and incredible kind of lyrical prose and little insights into into ordinary life, and and he's a fascinating character actually because he um, w- one of his most famous pieces was about a, a guy in the Bowery who was a sort of eccentric drinker stroke writer mm-hmm. called Joe Gould who was allegedly writing an oral history of the 20th century, uh, this gigantic book, ten times the size of the Bible. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, uh, Mitchell profiled him a couple of times, but eventually found that um, the book didn't exist at all. There was no book. Uh, and that was actually uh, Mitchell's own final piece for The New Yorker. It was called Joe Gould's Secret. And he didn't write a single word after that. He kept going into the office for the next... 20 years right. and nothing he's basically the J.D. Salinger of journalism you know a really fascinating character and I, I would advise everyone to um, to kind of go out and check him out because he's, he's oh, an absolutely fantastic. wonderful writer so, so him would would be the main the main influence really but also just little things like um, I was just looking again at um, uh, you know Archie Hines book the Dear Green Place yeah. and there's a chapter in it which is set entirely in um, a slaughterhouse. Mm-hmm. And I presume it must be the old slaughterhouse that used to be up on, on, on Duke Street. Um, which yeah, went, the meat market yeah. part. Um. When I first moved to Glasgow um, in 92, I lived in Denison, and um, I remember kind of walking past. It was it was, it was closed by that time, mm. but the, the facade was still there, and it's not there anymore. And it had like this... It looked like Satan, a sort of effigy of That's Satan right. in, front of the, in front of the arch. And I remember... You know, been amazed by this thing and wondering about it, and then you know, not terribly long after that, reading a dear green place for the first time, and connecting the two really. Um, I mean, it's a wonderful book, but there's this chapter in particular, mm-hmm. which just des- describes essentially the work um, of a, a sort of day in the life, essentially of a, a slaughterhouse, and it reads like just exemplary journalism. Yeah. It's a literary journalism. He's just describing the process of work and what it means to people. And those are themes I'm interested in. And I, I'm interested in trying to describe ordinary processes in quite a, a detailed and, and hopefully quite attractive you know, way. So, so that's an important piece for me as well. Yeah, I think sometimes you know, we're too quick to put writing into categories and say, well, it's fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just fantastic writing and you don't have to worry too much about where you find it. Yeah. And uh, there's some, in the opening part of uh, Dear Green Place as well, when it's a kind of lovely travelogue through Glasgow Green and the history of Glasgow Green. It's a beautiful bit of writing. It's a fantastic book, as you say. Mm. Um, well, let's talk about uh, Donderlust. It's interesting, you know, mentioning um, 
your influence is there because that is it's a not a, it's called dispatches from unreported Scotland. Yeah. And for me, it reads it's it's looking at the things that other people would maybe walk by, think about well that's an interesting thing or the people and and going into it in detail. So how did you? How did you pick your targets, if you like? I don't targets because it's not like that, but, you know, how did you pick the, the people and places that you wanted to write about? Well, I think it's... Um, for one thing, there is... A, 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 having a weekly deadline is a tremendously motivating <laughs> factor, you know, so there is that. But also, just by just by kind of walking around, you see things like... Um, not far from here, uh, there's uh, the Valdoro chip yeah. shop, um, just down at Glasgow Cross. Uh, not on the Gallagate. I got a row from the guy that owns it for saying it was on the Gallagate. It's at Glasgow Cross. And uh, it's an amazing place, you know, it's got a, a, it doesn't have it anymore actually, it's been taken down, but it had a gigantic sort of picture of the crucifixion. Oh, has uh, that been taken down? Yeah, just very recently, yeah. yeah. Um, but the Commonwealth sort of, Games maybe? Probably, yeah. <laughs> well, it's put up there, I think, for the Pope going past, that yeah. was the idea. But it was a very Glaswegian crucifixion with Christ being offered a, a restorative swig of, of iron brew, you know. Um, and, and and that place is inhabited by an amazing guy called Luigi Corvi, mm-hmm. who who owns it and whose family owned it for for many years. And he's he's the guy's twenty five stone. He sings operatic arias while serving fish suppers. And I mean, I just think I kind of maybe bought a bag of chips there one day or something like that, and um, or saw the crucifixion, and it, it just it just kind of came to mind. Or um, sometimes it's very serendipitous things like uh, I wrote a piece about. Um, about the sort of show folk travelling yeah, travelling fair yeah. uh, who the guy the, the guys that put on the, the waltzers and all mm. that and sort of turn up suddenly one the shows morning, yeah, yeah the shows aye. and uh, you know I, I, I was there at the Lynx Market in Kirkcaldy and it was towards the end of the day and um, I saw kind of walking towards me uh, this vision really which was um, a guy an old man um, in a sort of I think a long black coat with one of those sort of Soviet dissident faces and a big <laughs> white Old Testament beard, and he was carrying um, a, a placard you know, that said, you know, along the lines of "The end of the world is nigh" or "The wages of sin or death" or something like that, you know, uh, coming towards me. And his placard was kind of bumping along the the coloured lights of the hookah duck stall, you know. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, this I have to speak to this man um, because I, I had it in mind for a while that I'd wanted to do street preachers right. as a sort of subject yeah. because I always thought what is it like to stand there on mm. Buchanan Street or Princess Street you know talking about you know uh, you know Leviticus or whatever and being completely ignored you know yeah. uh, so I thought well I'll, 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 I'll speak to him I'll approach him and um, it turned out he'd actually read something I'd, I'd written okay. he'd read um, a piece I'd written about the, the I think the 700th anniversary of the King James Bible being published so that was lucky but, but he was called uh, George Jesus George is, mm-hmm. is how he's known and uh, he was he was he was kind enough to allow me to to sort of go and interview him at home and to then sort of spend some time on Princess Street with him so sometimes you just you just kind of get lucky with things like that or other things are more obvious like the um, you know the fourth bridge uh, fourth uh, bridge is a wonderful piece actually yeah uh, thank you because it, it captures Harry this object. The changes, I mean, it obviously made me think of Banks, the bridge, when, you, you know, mm-hmm. the way that people become involved, it becomes their life, they become linked to it, they identify themselves and who they are with this, you know, working on this bridge. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I was attracted to the idea, I mean, I've always, I mean, who wouldn't yeah. be attracted to the fourth bridge, you know, kind of living here or, or seeing it, but I was attracted to the idea that that metaphor, um, painting the fourth bridge, 
is coming to an end, you know, because they were applying this, for 10 years almost, they've been applying this special durable paint that meant they weren't going to have to keep on doing that thing of yeah. starting again as soon as they'd finished. So I thought, well, it'd be interesting to find out who are the the workers of the fourth budget. Kind of, it goes back to that Dear Dream Place thing. I'm interested in, in the processes mm-hmm. of work and, and the, the, the way it has meaning in our lives. You yeah, know? It, there, it reminded me a bit of the reaction of some of the people on the bridge of uh, in Father Ted where... Mrs. Doyle destroys the coffee making the tea making machine because she is defined by the fact she makes tea. I just thought this paint that's gonna last forever for these guys must be oh no yeah. spilling buckets of it over the side or something like that. Uh, so it was just it was just fascinating to be able to go there and, and, and spend I mean, a privilege really yeah. to be able to go up onto the top of the bridge and spend time with these guys in, in, in all weathers um, and, and see that, you know. But that's a great example. You know, people go back and forth across that bridge all the time and probably might see someone out the, the window and go, oh, there's, there's people on here. Yeah. But would not really go any further than that. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the piece on, on the uh, show folk, there's a few of them. Um, I think the one on the Waterloo Bar in Glasgow, which was, um, it was the first gay bar. In... Certainly the oldest gay bar in, in Glasgow and, in, and possibly in Scotland. I yeah. mean, some, there may be some place in Edinburgh possibly, but... Certainly in Glasgow, it's, it's the oldest in Glasgow. Uh, there's a few examples of, of people, I think, that a lot of folks' reaction would be... Maybe not... Well, some people would laugh at them, you know, mm-hmm. and point the finger and, and you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. I mean, Luigi Corby's a good example of that. I'm sure he's uh, as much abuse as he has praise over the years, or not more. Mm-hmm. But um, you've gone in and tried to understand and get a, a real kind of empathy with these people, no matter how they were. How difficult was it? To gain the trust of, of, of people? Well, I, I've kind of learned, I think, over the years that if I can meet people face to face, then generally it will probably work out okay. I think mm. there must be there's something about your manner, I think. Uh, I, I don't know if it's something instinctual in me or whether it's just that if you approach people in a kind of good-hearted way yeah, sure. and you're not there to stitch them up mm-hmm. then they, they somehow pick up on that I mean, you yeah. can tell them you can tell people that a hundred times but unless they yeah. believe it you know it's never going to work out so and also the other thing to say about that would be that I'm spending a lot of time in these places mm-hmm. so like the, the Waterloo Bar one you know, I was in there from opening time maybe 10 in the morning or something until it closed you know at kind of 1 or 2 that morning you know so you know if you hang around long enough then people won't people kind of begin to just get used to you, essentially, I yeah. think, you know. So there's that too. They'll just go about their business yeah. and the fact you're there. Yeah. Here but I think, I think tone is important and, and the sort of attitude of the writer towards the material because I really dislike, uh, can't stand sort of sneery journalism. Mm. It's, it's, it's cowardly, really, yeah. and, and easy. You know, if you, wouldn't, if, you know, if you wouldn't say that to someone's face, then don't go away when you then have the, when the power balance shifts back to you and you've got it all on your tape recorder, don't go away and write something taking the mickey out of them. I you know? agree completely, and I think far too much of that, as you say, the easy targets that people just decide that, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, perhaps more so on television than, they, than even in, in written journalism, but uh, um, that's, I mean, the, the Waterloo bar piece is fantastic because it's this kind of self-contained um, community almost, and with the places that people stand and how yeah. that relates to who they are and yeah and yeah I think I, I, I can't remember really but I think I remember writing that the most coveted spot was in the sort of end of the bar closest to the toilet so that was the sort of prestige position um, in the Waterloo Bar in part I think because the toilets could be quite busy places um, but uh, the sort of the, the, the least favoured position was 
um, at the other end of the bar, which was known as Compost Corner, which is where, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the sort of drinkers in advanced states of decrepitude would, would kind of linger and, and sip their, their pints. Uh, and I mean, it was, it's, a, it's a bar, it's different from the other gay bars in Glasgow, mm-hmm. as I understand it, because they tend to be quite youth focused, mm-hmm. whereas uh, the Waterloo is much more kind of open to everyone, and I think gets it generally, or did when I was there, a sort of older uh, clientele, so that, um, you know, I think some of the, 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 the chickens, as they call them, the kind of younger guys on the scene, refer to it as Jurassic Park, which is quite cruel. And I think this, the, thing, the, thing about, the thing about that is it's, it's full of, it's of humour, you know, there's this, yeah. this, this jokes to be found everywhere you go, the Waterloo being one example. Mm. But let the people make the jokes, you know what I mean? Don't you have to make them for them? I think that's an excellent point, yeah, because there is a lot of humour in the book. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's in-jokes almost between people and they're letting you have yeah. a little glimpse into this mm-hmm. life, the stuff down at the uh, Grand Ole Opry is another good example of a place where, you know, mm-hmm. just gives, the book itself just gives a little understanding into lots of these, uh, these kind of uncharted territories, if you like. Mm-hmm. There's also a lot of kind of pathos in the book as well. You know, there's chapters on memorial benches, um, the Fourth Road Bridge one, actually, you know, there's some sadness in there as well. Um mm-hmm. it, did you try and have a balance or can you not do that? It just comes out from the stories. It's just, it's, that's how people's lives are, I suppose. Well, I think it is what life is, isn't it? It is a mixture of, of kind of um, humour and, and sadness. And I think maybe that sort of split is particularly pronounced in the country that, that its humour tends to come black. So people make sort of quite dark jokes, I think, as a sort of partly as a coping mechanism. Uh, and also, I think people in Scotland and in Glasgow in particular are probably quite willing to tell you about sadnesses in their life, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But it is, it is probably a dynamic that I'm attracted to um, and want to get into the writing, that yeah. that emotional switch and blending. It's more of a blending than a switch, really, of, of, of kind of um, melancholy and, and euphoria, really. You know, um, I think my own personality mm-hmm. probably mixes those two things. And I yeah. think I'm, I'm kind of looking for it in, in society at large, really. I mean, you do go all over Scotland uh, in the book. Is there anything that you could take from 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 these articles that you say, well, there's a kind of personality about a Scot or anything like that? Is that too difficult to do to even think about? Because I think you know what you're talking about that mixture of being almost being drawn to uh, the downbeat, if you like. That seems to be something which is, if not shared, is quite common. Mm, possibly, yeah. I mean, certainly as a, as a collection, I, I definitely, after, about, after doing this for about a year, mm-hmm. I began to see it as something that added up to some kind of picture of the country. Yeah. But I think you really need, I don't think the, the country's contained in any one piece. I think you need the whole work to kind of make it hang together geographically as much mm-hmm. as anything, because it goes from you know, the kind of lowlands to the highlands and the, and the islands and the cities and the country. Mm-hmm. But I think there are perhaps certain um, character traits that do come out and, and you know, dark humour mm-hmm. would be one of them, you know, um, I think, and um, perhaps a certain sentimentality. Yeah. Um, but also a, a kind of, um, maybe a, an industriousness and a, a kind of vivacity as well, you know, I think these are, that's, those are generalisations, but that's, that's, that's something that I've, I've kind of found. I mean, I say in the introduction that, that I think character more than, than, than wind or wave or oil mm-hmm. is the sort of, uh, you know, the great natural resource of Scotland, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I, th- I think that's true, and I, and I hope that that comes out across the whole the whole collection. And there's, there seems to be 
a desire to hold on to a past, whether it's a real or an imagined one. Um, there's a few chapters dealing with various games which are still played hundreds of years. Yeah. Um, I mean, how was it reporting on, on these types of things? It's yeah. I mean, dangerous I, by the sounds of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I am very interested in, in local traditions, mm-hmm. you know, and, and a lot of them happen in the in the borders, yeah. really, you know. So um, in here you've got um, something about the common riding at Hoyk, uh, it's the 500th common riding this year actually okay. yes, it's going to be a big wow. big occasion um, and they're all over the borders because my mum's uh, yeah. side of the family are from Annan and they always had the riding in the marches and then there was one you know in Ecclefecken and, uh, yeah yeah I mean I've been to the Hoyk one and to the Selkirk one mm-hmm. I'm going to go to the Gallo Shields one um, pretty shortly um, and I just think what I like about these things is that they are happening um, without I mean they're very very colourful mm-hmm. um, and entertaining and they're spectacular, but they're not happening for spectators. You know, they're not in, in any way an adjunct of tourism or anything like that. No, they're they're local rituals, absolutely, and they're part of kind of local identity. You know, so there's so the common ridings are, are one, and there's also um, a a piece in here about the 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 the, the handball at yeah. Jedburgh or Jether as they call it there, um, where people have to kind of get this um, tiny little ball. It's almost like uh, some weird version of uh, the Harry Potter game. Yeah, like Quidditch, Quidditch yeah. yeah. Well, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe uh, Joanne Rowling had, had the, the Jether ball game in mind when she, when she penned the, the, the thing, you know. Um, but it's, it's violent, you know, it's a violent game and um, people, you know, are bashing each other, trying to get this ball from one end of the, the town to the other. Um, uh, there's uppies and doonies and yeah. uh, they're sort of in, in conflict to try to... And they, they can smuggle it inside your clothes or you can... It's not quite in the spirit of the game, but it's within the rules that you can, you know, hop on a motorcycle and, and zoom up, you know. But it's, I don't I can't believe nobody's televising this. I know, it'd be good, wouldn't it? That's one for BBC Alpa there, you know, um, to, to, to do that, I think. You know, I'd, I'd watch it, wouldn't you? I would watch it. You can have it on all day, you can dip in and out of it. Well, see maybe that's the problem, because you can't really schedule it, because um, it ends when it ends, you know what I mean? It's like... Um, it's not really got a sort of set time, so you can't... It's over one day, though, isn't it? Well... The, can it go on... Well, the thing is, I think the, the the number of balls is dictated by how many people want to sponsor one. So, <laughs> and then it could take hours for the ball to get from one end of the town to the other. So the day, the day I went, I think it was... It started off at lunchtime or something. I think it was 10 o'clock at night before it finished. So, you know, it's really... <laughs> It is a you're, you know viewers would be in it for the long haul. They would have to get some snacks in. I think. <laughs> I can see that. I mean, there's about six Sky Sports channels. Surely one of them they could follow that. Um, there also seems to be quite a lot. What struck me a lot of drink in the book. Yeah. Probably not deliberately, but just you know a lot of the there's Val at the what's it Hope and Anchor the the Crown and Anchor, Crown and Anchor in Aberdeen, in Aberdeen um, who. I mean, I know that area a little bit because my brother was up there at art school and it is a strange place because people are coming on and off the rigs at odd times mm-hmm. and there's bars and there's tattoo parlours yeah. and there's, you know, uh, strip joints as well, kind of all around the harbour area. But uh, mm-hmm. um, it did take you to a lot of places where drink was consumed. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I left some out, you know, I could have put, I could have put <laughs> others in that I'd, I'd written about. I mean, I think I'm quite interested in, in, in pub culture. You know? yeah. I'm not much of a drinker myself, I should mm-hmm. add. You know, I mean, I, I'm one of these guys that, you know, has two pints and then you, can, you can't type, you know what I mean? Like I, I wouldn't have been a very good journalist in the old days, you know, when that was like mandatory yeah. that you had to, had to go to the press bar for a few scoops at lunchtime. Uh, but, I, but I am interested in pop culture and I think that, um, generally speaking, we're too negative about alcohol in mm-hmm. this country. I think 
That's yes, interesting. Yes, um, we do have a big problem with alcohol, no question about it, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, it, it, it sort of in- increases levels of, of violence. That's unquestionable, you know, poor health. I, I was in Govan the other day mm-hmm. and I saw a guy in his 20s getting on the tube to come into town with his wee nephew who was like maybe 10 years old or something. They were going to see a, 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 something at the pictures. Mm-hmm. And the 20-year-old the was, you know, full of drink, a mm-hmm. bottle of Bucky on the tube and all that. You know, you just think this is quite dysfunctional in some ways. Yeah. Um, but I do think that pubs are different from that. And... Um, not pubs like you get in the middle of Glasgow where you can, can't hear yourself think and all that. Yeah, like music yeah, yeah. And, you know, uh, or, and there's too much brush steel for my liking, you know, whatever it is they have these days. It was wrought iron you used to get in yeah, style yeah, bars. Yeah, it was black and yeah. silver. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, like proper pubs where they don't really play music and it's all it's more about kind of chat and things. Mm-hmm. And I think that these places are great uh, repositories of story and character. And I think you can actually learn something about being... A grown up, I suppose, a man in particular, you would say, because they mm-hmm. tend to be kind of men's places. These where you go in and you learn to drink. You know, you learn the etiquette of drinking, yeah. the, the thing about the rounds and one for yourself, and yeah. you know all that kind of thing. I think there are real positives about pubs that I like to kind of pick up on, yeah. but which um, you know don't really get written about. So I think I'm on a wee bit of a crusade to to sort of do PR for 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 good pubs, but only good pubs. Did you hear the story? I think it was in the Evening Times yesterday about the guy who was um, manages the Empire Bar, which is just down the road from here under the bridge at the salt market. Um, yes. Undercover police went in uh, and he only served one rolling sausage between the two of them but gave them both drinks where it's mm-hmm. supposed to be mm-hmm. a rolling sausage. This is at eight, at 8 o'clock in the morning and has been kind of done for it or at least it's been charged for it. Yeah. Um, which is an interesting story in itself. Yeah, <laughs> so many yeah, questions, yeah, yeah. you know. I mean, certainly, um, I know I do know about that situation in, in that pub and others where there's a kind of licensing question to do with um, being able to sell drink at a certain time in the morning. Mm. You have to serve it with a meal, essentially. Yeah. So people that um, want the drink have to buy food, you know. And mm. and I remember reading a piece by a very good journalist called David Leask in mm-hmm. Even Times um, a, a wee while ago where he went into one of those pubs. Was it the Lamp Post, maybe? I can't remember Possibly. which one it was. And, uh, you know, spent time talking to those guys. And, and I think, um, on the one hand, drinking, you know, you know, a double vodka and Coke at 10 in the morning isn't really necessarily a very good thing for you health-wise. Mm-hmm. But you'd probably be drinking anyway in the mm-hmm. house. So at least coming into the pub, you've got oh. a sort of, um, there's a sort of social network. And I, I hear a lot about, um, you know, you know, barmaids that will kind of... Um, send somebody around to check on a regular if he doesn't come in that day because he's always in. Absolutely. So, like, you know, people's illnesses and deaths are not going missed, mm-hmm. you know, in that way. So I think, you know, I think, you know, there's, there's a real yin and yang about this whole this whole subject. But I think there, I think we need to remember the positives about pub yeah. culture. and it should be complicated. You know, it shouldn't be kind of black and white for these things. And it's another example, I think, of people who, you know, who would maybe walk up and down the street, judge a place by the folk inside it and, you know, mm-hmm. never think to ask any more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think talking I think, of judging. Okay, yeah. what you well, I was just going to say the other thing about that is I'm, I think I'm quite interested in um, writing about you know for want of a better word working class culture mm-hmm. and I think um, you, you know we've, I think we we are in Glasgow and elsewhere in the middle of a great middle classification of the country you know uh-huh. and I think that that's maybe something that takes me to certain pubs because I'm interested in 
in the, in a certain a certain kind of way of life or way of speaking or, or type of humour, you know. And you so you find that in particular pubs, and I think that's another reason for the preponderance of pubs in the stories. Yeah, uh, you also go to the kind of top table as well in the book. There's a few uh, yeah. ex colonels and things like that that you end up talking to. Is that in London? If I remember. Yeah, that? yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's it's extremes that are interesting, isn't yeah, it? You know, course, so yeah. um, you know, I'm not interested in writing about somebody having a bottle of Jacob's Creek and watching the X Factor. You know, I want to write about these kind of extremes, and yeah. and so. I went to um, something. I mean, I've done pieces on grouse beating, and, mm. and, and there's a piece in the book on fox hunting. Um, but but the, the piece you're talking about is it's about the, the Royal Caledonian That's Ball the name, yeah, in, yeah. in London, which is um, <laughs> it's a phenomenal picture of of uh, talk about imagined past, but you know, celebrating yeah. this. Yeah, well, I mean, just to just to set the scene for that, we but um, I, I had to go down to London on the sleeper the night before. Um, and it's one of those last minute jobs where you can't actually get a, a cabin and you have to sit on a seat and sort of wrap a, tuck a scarf around your eyes. Yeah, and okay, to sleep. yeah, yeah. Um, so I went down to London from Glasgow um, and I went and interviewed R.D. Lang's son um, that afternoon who had okay. a book out. So he lives wow. up in Highgate. What was the book about? It was a novel actually. Oh, okay. Um, about um, rehab. Oh. And um, we, I interviewed him in um, a sort of outdoor cafe. And got really, really badly sunburned, right? Okay. And then I thought, right, I better go over into the Grosvenor, which is a very, very, one of the very, very upmarket hotels in London. I think it's in Park Lane. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, got the, the biggest ballroom in London. Um, once the, the time before I was in there was to interview Status Quo, actually. That's my, <laughs> uh, yeah. Celebrity interviews, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> And um, so I walked um, from kind of Highgate um, over to uh, the Grosvenor, you know, not quite realising just how badly sunburned I was at that point, and then went into the into the hotel and went into the toilets to get changed out of my uh, suit, which I was wearing mm. to interview uh, Adrian Lang, mm. into my tuxedo, which I had to wear in order to gain access to the, the Royal Caledonia <laughs> Ball. But it's basically... There's a very kind of um, set of rules about what you have to wear to this thing, mm-hmm. um, and but dinner jackets, tuxedos, are what the staff wear basically. So I had to dress as the staff. Okay. I wasn't, you know, if, if I'd actually been going as a as a as a proper guest, it would have been, you know, you know, it'd be your kilt or your mm. kind of, you know, basically your Highland dress or your or like your mess your mess kit, you know. Yeah, sure. Um, or you know, tartan and tiaras if you're if you're female. <laughs> Um, so, I, so this thing started, and it's it's basically to explain what it is. It's um, all the the sort of um, nobility of Scotland once a year kind of go down to London for this um, this event, which is a, a, an evening of doing the gay gardens and strip the willow and all that stuff. Um, there's a lot of whiskey gets consumed, but people are, but it's not really particularly drunken because people are dancing it off. I mean, these okay. are people, these are people that have learned to do you know, the dashing white sergeant before they could barely walk, yeah, you know, yeah. and it's a religion for them, you know, and it's incredible to watch, you know, you stand up on one of those balconies and look down and it's just, it's just extraordinary, the floors writhing with this, <laughs> these, pa- these fractal tartan patterns, you know. Um, so, and Lord Biddulph was a great guy, he was, um, he's, I think he's from the borders actually, and he was a great character, you know, with his 50 year old kilt and, uh, a lovely lady on each arm and full of kind of charm and whiskey and stuff. He's he was a great guy, um. So it, it was brilliant to be able to see 
literally how the you see how the upper half live yeah, how, yeah. The, how the upper one percent live yeah, really, of it, it is you know so they but this thing goes on until four in the morning or something you know <laughs> uh, and uh, you know they, they break off I think at, at, at two for some kedgery or something like that you know but I remember like I left it I left at four I'd had a few drinks. I don't normally have have, have drinks when I'm working, but I had a few just to, to, to sustain. So yeah, so <laughs> I remember walking from kind of Park Lane up to King's Cross. You know, it kind of as the sun was coming up. You know, walking through Soho <laughs> with like sunstroke and you know something approaching alcohol poisoning. It was, and then and then sitting getting the six o'clock train. And, and writing it on the way up, I think I'd written it by Preston. So if 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 if, 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 it, if it reads like a kind of a psychedelia, then that might explain why. Yeah, it, it's got a touch of the burrows about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, another, I've got to mention a fantastic piece on um, the Fetish Club in uh-huh. uh, in Edinburgh. Um, another group of people I would imagine who are difficult to gain people's trust. I would think, but uh, he managed it brilliantly, and and there's a. Um, Again, another group of people who I think folk would judge, whether harshly or not, or just decide to point at them without really understanding what it was about and kind of who were involved. It starts off with someone, I think, wearing leather trousers, and they go, no, no, you're not getting in with that. Yeah, yeah, well, this guy turned up, um, I, I basically decided to, to try to explain to people what people looked like. I would start the piece by talking about... Um, being in being at the front of the queue next to the woman that was basically deciding whether people were dressy enough to get in. Yeah. So she's asking for she's looking for people that are wearing leather or latex or, or, or kind of rubber or whips or whatever, mm. you know, or, or various fanciful dress of different kinds. And she was turning away a guy that was like dressed like Bergerac or something, you know what I mean? He, <laughs> you know, kind of or Lovejoy more yeah, you know, yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. leather blue on and the stone machines and they're like she was like, No, this is my party, you know, you can't come in, you've not made an effort. You yeah. Know? Um I was a bit worried about. I mean, that that actually point is that I, I wasn't quite sure what to wear to that myself. Yeah, of course. I wasn't wasn't very clear what I should do um, because you want to not freak people out, but at the same time you don't want to uh, pretend to be anything other yeah, than a journalist. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So um, I decided just to just to basically go as a journalist. So I was mm-hmm. wearing like um, a, a suit and a, a, a herringbone overcoat buttoned to the neck. Which I was like, hoping might hint at something. <laughs> something dangerous risky. underneath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it, was, it was only my sweaty body that was underneath. So I was, uh, and, and a full beard at that time as well, you know. So, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, so uh, you know, I, I, and it, what, what really helped with that one was that um, the photographer, Alex Hewitt, that was with me on that night had set up a sort of mini studio, um, just a, a backdrop and his camera on a, on a tripod mm-hmm. near the bar. So it was quite obvious that there was, like, this was going on. And it meant that, that he, that, that the people that were more willing to, you know, the more trade people, um, yeah. more exhibitionist people were coming to be photographed. And uh, I would usually try to grab a few words of them. Or sometimes I would talk to people um, when they were outside having a fag or whatever. I remember, like, I went out and there was a woman getting led out, a woman, quite a plump woman wearing a gimp mask, mm-hmm. getting led out in a lead um, to have a smoke and a can of Red Bull, you know, and so they were quite good. <laughs> they, were quite, they, were, they were pretty much the first box pops of the night. But it's just like, you know, you just talk to people. Oh yeah, of course. And, and uh, be respectful and yeah. interested. And it's amazing, you know, how, how kind of open people will be about, you know, what it is that they're into whether, they're whether, they're it, be, in whether it be you know the, the handball in Jedburgh or mm-hmm. the kind of fetish club in Edinburgh you know uh, these are passions for these people yeah. you know 
just it's the sort of passion you see when someone takes you know uh, an oil painting onto the antiques roadshow you know there's just the difference is this time it's it's a gimp mask you know <laughs> very, very little difference behind every gimp mask there's a real person yeah, yeah yeah and yeah absolutely I, I used to go running down the banks of the Clyde and I would see yeah. the guys fishing in, under the yeah. Romantic Bridge and you'd also in the, in the east end of Glasgow you see the Ducats you know the kind of mm. sh- shacks where people you know raise pigeons from and you, it's just that thing of going and, and as you say just talking to them and hearing the story and I think I mean I imagine a lot of them would be maybe suspicious at first but then just go God Somebody's showing an interest, as you say, in something that we love. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Ducat guys are quite interesting because they are naturally suspicious because um, the, the, the Ducats, just to explain, are these, these kind of big pigeon lofts that you yeah, see. Yeah, they're kind of made out of anything, really, but, you know, corrugated iron and things yeah, like that. Yeah, and they're, 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 they tend to be about 20 feet tall or something mm. like that, and pe- the idea is it's a game, really. People release um, a, a male pigeon from this thing and someone else releases a female pigeon, and the idea is that they each try to tempt the other back to their ducat and if they go back to that other person's ducat they pull a cord and the cage comes up and traps that pigeon so mm. and it's then theirs you know um, and I, it's an incredible culture that yeah. it's been written about and made films about quite a lot now but at okay. that time it hadn't been and um, so I, I, had, I often wondered about these things I didn't know what they were mm. you know I could so, sometimes see a pigeon sitting in one but I never quite understood exactly what was going on I never saw anyone going in or out of them yeah yeah <laughs> Or building them. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, so eventually I did manage to somehow work out what they were and um, decided just to, the way to talk to people would just be to go up to them mm-hmm. and sort of have a look at them. And very quickly, as soon as you go near these things, somebody will come out of their house and speak to you because they think you're there to steal their birds or to set fire to their ducat because that happens all the time. Okay. There's a sort of a certain criminality around it. So mm-hmm. people do... You know, sometimes they get burned down, and sometimes birds get stolen. And you know, birds get that get stolen in Glasgow. I understand often get sort of taken over in a van to Edinburgh <laughs> and sold there because that way they won't make their way back to but Glasgow. Of course, yeah. There's some sort of psychic shield between Edinburgh and Glasgow <laughs> that prevents that homing instinct from kicking in. I think somewhere around uh, the service station. Yeah, Hartnell, Hartnell Services are beaming something into the sky. But there's a you know you see it's almost a barometer of how. Um, a, a city is doing, you know, the, uh, when things have got knocked down, then ducats will appear in their place, and yeah. then they'll get knocked down because people want to build again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I, I saw a couple yesterday. You know, I went into the, I went into the East End of Glasgow yesterday on a story, and uh, obviously there's been a great deal of building yeah. going on because of the Commonwealth Games, but there are still patches of, of waste ground, and where there are patches of waste ground, these things grow up, you know, if, you, if you've got a lot of spare time and a lot of spare ground, then, then kind of the do fleeing, as they call it, yeah. is, is possibly the sport for you, you know, uh, and it's, it's, it's just, a, it's a beautiful thing, I think. Absolutely, know? yeah. Um, it'd be interesting to see, I think, how once the Commonwealth Games moves away, how the East End of Glasgow will change once again, because I was there recently for the first time in a long, long time, and I was just like, wow, this is new roads. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. Yeah. I think I think actually they should make the Dufley part of the Commonwealth. <laughs> I think they've missed, missed, missed they've missed they've missed the trick there, you know. I think. Yeah. Oh, catching fish on the Clyde! <laughs> yeah, they, they could have incorporated all of those things definitely. I'd like to have seen you know the people from Fiji bringing birds of paradise and mm-hmm. things like that and getting them involved, you know that sort of thing. Actually, you know, seriously, going back to the sh- the show folk, that part of Glasgow was where they were based, and that seems to have all been. Yeah, flattened. yeah, yeah. I mean, Dalmarnock. I mean, that was how I kind of knew about the the show folk was just by walking around in Dalmarnock. Yeah. Uh, which is an area in the east and um, seeing these 
called showman's yards yeah. where um you know almost like little gated communities that would have um you know caravans big caravans sort of converted into into permanent houses yeah and i think some of that um land has been has been cleared now yeah, it's certainly sure changed it a lot yeah i've not really been been back to look at it but mm-hmm. so i understand um so you said that you know you left some pieces out how difficult was it you know, deciding what went in. Well, we were trying to do... The idea was to try to get a kind of um, geographical spread, really, you know, mm-hmm. and and also a sort of difference in in, in social types and stuff. So that's yeah. why you've got the Royal Caledonian Ball uh, cheek by jail with a piece about um, a kind of homeless hostel, yeah. you know. Um, and so there's pieces on London and, you know, Dundee. And the idea was just to try to kind of represent... Um, a lot of different parts of Scotland yeah. um, within within the book. So there was there was pieces that that um, could have gone in there um, and may yeah if there was another volume possibly mm-hmm. down the line. Um, you know I've got other I've got another pub piece about the Scotia Bar that I think was oh, okay. was, was quite a good piece and I was sorry to see that go but I didn't think you could you could kind of have it because it was already something a bit like that. Yeah, and I've written things since I'd like to see. In a future volume, you know, so that was that was that was the selection process, really. I th- I, I personally would love to see another volume. I, th- I really enjoyed them. We'll see if anybody buys it. And then yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, go out and buy it. Go to this thing. Um, well, let's. That's an interesting question, you know, about people buying books or buying newspapers or buying the printed word. Um, it's something I'd like to chat about before we finish. Mm. How do you, you know, how do you, you know, you say you know, freelance. Um, there's no doubt that newspapers, you know, they're a dwindling in themselves, aren't they? Not just readerships, but actually going out of business. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it's very, very concerning, obviously. I mean, I think Scotland was once, you know, arguably the greatest newspaper reading nation in the world mm. per head of population. Um, you know, the Sunday Post was a paper that was read by more people, you know, in terms of penetration of audience than any other paper in the world uh-huh. um, and and now you know we've got a, a real problem on our hands I think with um, with dwindling readership and it's, it's a tough one you know I think um, I think there's this maybe a, a, a kind of problem partly to do well there's, a, there's, a, there's difficulty with the internet isn't there yeah, so um, people are more likely to look online for news now than they are um, to buy a paper, yeah. and newspapers haven't generally speaking found a way to earn money from no. from that. You know, so a lot of material still given away for free because you think, well, would people actually pay to look at it? You know, mm-hmm. um, but also I, I, while I, I do think there is a, a need to, obviously to satisfy the demand for people wanting to read things online. I would say that you do still need to invest in content, even though you're not mis- necessarily producing a an actual printed paper to the mm-hmm. same extent you do need still to have great writing for people to read on their phones yeah, or, exactly, or their, or their tablets course. or that kind of thing but but also as well as that I do still think there maybe is a place for, for newspapers and, and if we did have more investment in, in writing um, then it could be turnaroundable um, I think some I think partly it's a problem with ownership I think um, you don't really get the feeling that newspapers in this country are owned by people that really care about writing or pictures, right. you yeah, know. Sure. Um, and I think if there was a bit more passion from 
you know, I almost want a kind of benevolent dictator to yeah. take over some of the, some of the titles, you know, and try to really get people reading them again and care about stories, care about breaking stories, care about great writing, mm-hmm. great pictures, you know. Um, I, so I think that I think there's that. I think ownership might make a difference. I also think that um, newspaper editors have been perhaps too narrow, narrowly focused on the sorts of people they're trying to pitch at. Right. I think um, it's ironic. I was saying earlier about the middle classification of of Scotland, but I do think that the the the, the broadsheet papers in particular in Scotland are too tightly aimed at a kind of middle class white collar professional audience that just isn't that into them anymore <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and i think um they could do with trying to broaden it out and try to get the paper read by i mean i write these stories um like the fisherman and dalmarnock mm. piece right i wrote about these guys that, that fished down at dalmarnock bridge right and they would never ever ever buy scotland on sunday mm-hmm. but they did buy it on that weekend when the story appeared. Of course. And yeah. they really liked that piece, mm-hmm. which wasn't written in any kind of particularly, you know, gentrified kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people have got too... Uh, I think their, their expectations of, pe- of people are too too low, you know. I think we should maybe be aiming at a, yeah. gra- a, a greater amount of people. I think, you know, the broadsheet should be taking the fight to the Daily Record and the Sun mm-hmm. and not think that is their audience. Yeah. I think we should be trying to sell... Um, into uh, into Kilsyth and into Cumbernauld and into Alloa mm-hmm. and Airdrie and Kilmarnock and Kirkcaldy and not just think about Glasgow yes. even, and not even just think about Glasgow not even just think about the west end of Glasgow and the south yeah. side of Glasgow but think about the east and the north and think about um, you know other places and I think that is, is is the way to do that to try to take almost a kind of local newspaper approach something sure. that the Courier and the P&J mm-hmm. do really well mm-hmm. but apply it on a kind of national level but of course that takes money because you have to hire people to do that. You have yeah. to have people filing stories from, you know, the different parts of parts of the cities mm-hmm. and so on. I, I do think it's turnaroundable, but it needs vision and commitment, and it needs money to make it happen. Yeah, and it goes back to that enthusiasm you're saying you started off in fanzines, and that you you, know, you don't do that unless you absolutely love mm-hmm. the thing you're writing about and writing itself. Mm-hmm. And you're right. I think people who. Uh, you know, more of that involved in newspapers uh, would only be a good thing. It's something that isn't talked about much in journalism is is the the actual aesthetics of of the writing. I mean, you know, we, we the thing that's valued generally in journalism is is exclusives and and, and mm. stuff of that sort. But what you find from readers is that they actually do respond to a well turned sentence, absolutely, a, and um, and a bit of beauty really in. Both the words and the pictures. You know, there's an enormous amount of talented people in yeah. in, in in Scottish journalism. They write wonderfully well, and and there's some incredible photographers. And I think we should celebrate that more, make a bit more of it. Really, you know. I think most people have, uh, you know, amongst their favourite writers, would say that that somewhere along the line there'd been a, a columnist that they would never miss. Mm-hmm. You know, no matter what they were writing about, because they liked the style, or liked their enthusiasm, or whatever it was about it. And I think you're right. I think that is underrated. Mm-hmm. You know, this idea that well, we you know we can get rid of that writer because someone else will come in and do it, you know, for, for half the price or something like mm-hmm. that is a it's quite a frightening one. I think um, we almost need a PR agency to come along and sell journalism back to people and tell yeah. them that, you know this is what's good about it. You know, we we're so used to talking about the um, about Levison and um, the immoralities of modern day uh, journalism and the problems with it, but there's there's a tremendously positive aspect to it as well I mean uh, uh, you know 
and look at something like you do still get great crusading journalism journalism mm. in Scotland as well. And look at the uh, the Morton Hall crematorium yeah. story that came out of you know Gina Davidson writing in the in the Evening News. Um, you know these are these things matter. You know content matters and style matters, and I think we need to focus on both of those things going forward. Do you think paper uh, news, newspapers in particular have um, seen what's happening online and said right, well, what we need to do now is make it shorter, make it you know, people don't have the attention span and actually, as you say, give people more credit than that and say, no, people are willing to read lengthy pieces, yeah. interesting pieces, if they're well written and if they are. I don't know if it's even that strategised that they want to like make it shorter and punchier. I think they're just not willing to spend the money, really. Okay. Um, right. I think that's what it comes down to. Okay, that's quite depressing. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to... <laughs> that's all right, finish. No, I, well, let's not end that way because what we do um, with uh, our guests is ask them about five questions about favourite things. Oh, right, okay. Okay. Um, and you may have answered this already, but who is your kind of columnist that you you look up to more than any other? Um, well, living. You mean someone like? No, or or or. or. Well, well, I would. Well, I'll give. I'll give you with Joe Mitchell, who we talked about earlier, yeah. as, a, as a kind of not a columnist really, but a yeah. reporter. You know, yeah. a great, a great feature writer. I, I would, you know, have to say I admire him above all others, mm-hmm. really. Uh, but in, in terms of someone living, I think uh, Lynn Barber, uh, the yeah. Sunday Times now, is still such a great interviewer. I love journalists where you can tell who they are without having to see the byline. Yeah. You know, they've got personality in their work, and she's got great courage in her questioning and energy in her writing. It's that sort of. Uh, Nair van Verf, you know, uh, yeah. and uh, she's 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 a favourite of mine. And that's she's exactly what I'm talking about. People you would follow from paper to paper because mm-hmm. you want to read their writing. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm a massive magazine fan and another form of writing which seems to be dwindling. But you know, have you got a favourite magazine that you still think I pick that up every time? Um, I I I don't really actually to be honest with you. Well, I mean, I I, I like I tell you what I like. Um, I don't buy them every every week or every mm. month or whatever, but I, I I'm a big fan of you know the New Yorker you know I yeah. think the New Yorker because yeah, yeah. I'm interested in, in long form writing mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm one of the few places you can get uh, yeah. essays. You know? I am the guy who's going to read twenty thousand words on Nigerian <laughs> politics you know <laughs> uh, because it's because it's well written you know it yeah. draws you in um, and I, I I love National Geographic you mm-hmm. know for for similar kind of reasons and I actually think um, a bit closer to home I actually think that the you know that. You're, there's some great stuff in the uh, in the big issue now. I think mm. the big issues actually uh, over that's the last the last couple of years is just a magazine that's kind of gone from strength to strength and and is is actually fulfilling some of that sort of obligation towards content and style that yeah I was talking about. Uh, and it's, it's had some great exclusives and you know writing. Um, there was another in Welsh one recently. I think mm. you absolutely. And covers are great as well. They think about cover design. That's something that Esquire used to do back in the sixties. Yeah. Really think about their covers. Um, you'd have uh, that thing of like Muhammad Ali pierced with arrows, you know, like Saint Sebastian, uh, and they they do really inventive uh, cover design, and I uh, admire that. I also think it's the reverse of Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair often has really good articles in it, but the cover makes it look like you know a celebrity, mm-hmm. you know, People magazine or something like yeah. that. Um, we talked briefly about Archer Hines' Dear Green Place. Do you have a favourite? Fiction, writer of fiction. Charles Dickens, I would say. Yeah, um, yeah, I would have to agree with that. For sure, you know, I mean, I've been. Uh, the last few years, working my way through Dickens's work okay. in, in the order of publications, so starting with the Pickwick Papers, and, 
uh, will eventually finish on Edwin Drood. But I keep getting derailed by having to read things for work. So, like, I, I remember for, for a while I'd read up to The Old Curiosity Shop, which I think is number three mm-hmm. uh, in his work, and then I had to stop to read Jade Goody's memoir. And I never... <laughs> and I never which is interesting, because she is quite Dickensian, or was quite a Dickensian, even her name. Did you start reading that into Yeah, yeah, I mean, Jade Goody... Goody it is, He could have made, made that name up, couldn't he? You know? Of course. Um, but I think he's I think he's an absolute... I mean, he was a journalist himself. Of course, um, yeah. An absolute master, really, of um, characterization and descript- descriptive writing, and just so funny. I think I read him more for the jokes yeah. than for the <laughs> than for the tears, really. You know, that's interesting. If looking at Agnew, he's a phenomenal writer. Um, in the book, do you have a favourite piece? Um, unfair. Well, I like. Um, there's a couple of pieces that I like because they were difficult to do, really. Um, so the one about um, the Castle Milk Lads mm. where I, I tried to find what had happened to the boys in Oscar Mazzaroli's yeah. famous 1963 photograph who were, they were like in their... Um, this is a photo that was on Deacon Blue's Chocolate Girl. Yeah, that's right. So people yeah. may be aware of it, but it's four young lads, black and white picture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the gallusness just comes off the, the, the page, doesn't it? It's mm-hmm. amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it's quite an iconic picture, really. Yeah. The National Portrait Gallery in Scotland, you know, use it pretty prominently now. Okay. Uh, and so, I, but they were never named in the picture. Mm-hmm. It just said Castle Milk Lads, 1963. So I set about trying to find them and eventually found three of them the boy whose kind of face is half yeah. out of the frame is still a mystery to me if anyone knows who he is please get in touch get in touch definitely um, so that took a long time and it was very difficult and it was tremendously satisfying to kind of get them back together again for another photograph you know. and they don't look that different no 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 <laughs> another one would be a similar thing because it was difficult was um, the piece about um, Memorial Park benches yeah where uh, I've always been interested in those little plaques you get on park benches saying so-and-so loved this place and, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So I went through Princess Street Gardens and the Royal Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh, noting down the ones that I found particularly moving or interesting, and then tried through a long period to contact the people who, who um, had put them there, really, mm-hmm. and write about the lives that had gone, you know. And uh, that was very... Um, uh, quite a moving yeah absolutely it's yeah. a very poignant piece actually because it's again it's something that you know people maybe sit on in the lunchtime and not take note of, of, of the stories behind it well yeah I mean I think um, it's sort of a theme that's sort of central to the book isn't it I think that so much of our identities are actually defined by the pleasures we take in life you mm-hmm. know and um, you know sitting on a bench on a sunny day looking up at Edinburgh Castle or whatever you know yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a lovely thing to do and um, I think it's worth trying to uh, mark that moment, really. And finally, um, before we let you go, you, how did you... I mean, did you always think, I'm going to be a writer, or was this something that you kind of started doing the fanzines and fell into? Well, I, mean, I think I started I started doing the fanzines and stuff partly because... I mean, I'm not... Um, you know, I, I was writing a bit of music, and I'm not, I'm not musical, you know, I can't play mm. guitar or anything like that, but I think um, I'm interested in the sounds of words, the sort of things you can do with yeah. certain, putting certain words together in the rhythm of sentences and the music of that really. I mean I think I'm kind of a frustrated photographer in a way because I'm able to I'm able to describe things. Yeah. But I wouldn't be able to necessarily take Capture it. A, in a photograph. Uh, and also maybe a frustrated novelist. You mm-hmm. know? So the, the people themselves supply the characterization and, and um, plots and, and so on. 
So it's it's maybe a wee bit of um, working by proxy, sure. but certainly I, I I absolutely love being able to do that, being able to achieve certain effects and moods mm-hmm. and emotions with moving words around. Yeah. And, you know, it's an, it's you know it's it's a very fortunate thing to be able to do. And uh, they are there are like little snapshots as well as you know dispatches mm-hmm. from the Scotland. And um, I have to say, it's a great book. And from a purely selfish point of view. I think you should all go out and get a copy so we can get at least one more volume. Peter, thanks very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. No, thanks for having me. And we'll be back soon with something uh, completely different. Cheers. (laughs)